Blessings of the Triple Gem, Therawan Saranai. Welcome to another Sutta Meditation Series Dhamma Livestream. Heartfelt good wishes to everyone joining today. The title for today's Dhamma session is The Second Doorway to Nibbana, Painful Practice with Quick Realization. And this is based on the Asuba Sutta. So this is on Nikaya Chapter 4, Discourse Number 163. And we're referencing the insight pathways given in the Pitaka Disclosure, also known as the Pethakopadesa. If you're new to hearing about the Buddha's teaching on the Four Nutriments and the Four Modes of Practice, you can catch up by viewing the video playlist titled Four Nutriments, as well as the Doorways to Nibbana. This channel's main objective is to help those who are interested to develop the Noble Eightfold Path by contemplating or meditating on the Buddha's instructions in the suttas. We call them sutta meditations and we extract the knowledge or insight pathways from these suttas in order to follow in the footsteps of the Buddha and also those of his noble disciples. So today's sutta meditation or insight pathway is the mode of practice, the Patipada that Venerable Mahamogalana developed to liberate himself from this whole mass of suffering. So let's begin by paying respects to the Noble Ones. We can bow our heads and Anjali, homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dhamma, and homage to the Noble Sangha. Let's have a look at what we'll cover in this session. So how to get the best out of this session, our usual reminders and tips. We'll recap the four nutriments and the four modes of practice. So we set the foundation for the mode of practice that we're looking at today. We'll then also look at the kind of spiritual faculties and powers that are associated with this mode of practice. And then we'll briefly touch on Venerable Mahamogalana's mode of practice. And then we'll look at what underpins this second doorway to Nibbana. And then we'll deep dive into the insight pathway for painful practice with quick realization. And lastly, we'll recap the meditation instructions that we go through in this session. And we'll close this session by sharing the merit and the blessings. So how to get the best out of this session? The main thing is to keep an open mind, be open and attentive to the Buddha's words in this particular discourse and the instructions for today's meditations. Be okay with not understanding everything, whatever you understand and able to practice in this session, maybe what is needed right now and the rest will come later. Remember that we're all learners, we're here to lean on each other to make effort towards developing the noble path and we're walking this path together. And apply ourselves or apply yourself to the Buddha's words, like really give yourself the opportunity to connect with the Buddha's words and those of the noble ones. And if you meditate, meditate applying your own examples because wherever we have the opportunity, this is how we connect with the instructions to connect with the Dhamma. And as we've always said, the Buddha's teaching is a wisdom pathway. We see the Dhamma directly through applying our own examples, gaining direct insight. And when we see the Dhamma, we see the Buddha. And when we see the Buddha, we see the Dhamma. 
and have good wishes for everyone who is joining today and anyone who has helped us on this spiritual path up until this point. Let's start with the Buddha's words from the Kitagiri Sutta. This is Majjhimi Discourse number 70. The Buddha says, Because I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And how is final knowledge achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, gradual process, progress? Here one who has conviction in a teacher visits him. When he visits him, he pays respect to him. When he pays respect to him, he gives ear. One who gives ear hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it. He examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings. When he has gained a reflective acceptance of those teachings, zeal springs up in him. When zeal has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives resolutely. He realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. So we've heard these words before. And the first statement about it not happening all at once, but it's a gradual training, practice and progress. This has also been stated in the Paharada Sutta in Anguttara Nikaya. It's really helpful to recall this passage today because the Insight Pathway Meditation we're examining involves a lot of pulling together of different meditations in order to develop this painful practice with quick realization. So when the Buddha says final knowledge is not achieved all at once, but through gradual training, gradual practice and gradual progress, we really need to take that to heart for this session today. Bear in mind the Buddha's words on how to gradually train, practice and make progress. We listen to the Dhamma carefully during this session and after. We memorize the Dhamma. So this includes taking notes and memorizing the steps. We examine the meaning. So in this session and after. We accept the Dhamma after reflecting on it. So in this session and after. We have enthusiasm and desire to practice the Dhamma, so during the session and after. And we contemplate and arouse energy towards practicing the Dhamma, so that's in this session and after. And so as a result of that, we gain insight and wisdom from practicing the Dhamma, so it's during this session and after. So it's good to have reasonable expectations, to know that we need to make effort, and to practice patience in the process of learning particular meditations. And this is one of those meditations that needs some effort, needs some patience, and needs some time. And the fruits of this particular meditation, this painful practice with quick realization, it's actually immense. But it will take time and effort to learn and then to become skilled at it. But the point is not to be dissuaded from it be overwhelmed from this particular mode of practice when we see that it is Venerable Mahamogalana who liberated through this mode of practice. It's something to be inspired by, not to be overwhelmed. So before we deep dive into the second doorway to Nibbana and this painful practice with quick realization, let's recap the four nutriments and the four no modes of pra practice. The Buddha taught that there are these four unprofitable directions. So this is what we see up here. 
And it begins with these four nutriments. So in Pali, this is chataro, ahara, which are explained in the simile in the Puttamansa Sutta. And these four nutriments are what the Buddha terms acquisitions or upadhi in Pali. And they're to be understood and relinquished. Otherwise, we go the four wrong ways. And in Pali, this is chatari, agati, gamana. So we know we have the physical nutriment, contact as nutriment, mental volition as nutriment, and consciousness as nutriment. So these four unprofitable directions are rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. And they're the doorways that will result in rebirth in sansara. So we can see that the physical nutriment, when you follow the long pathway, which is not shown here, it leads to going the wrong way due to desire. And contact as nutriment leads to going the wrong way due to hate. And mental volition as nutriment, it leads to going the wrong way due to fear. And consciousness as nutriment leads to going the wrong way due to delusion. Now, the Buddha also teaches that there are these four profitable directions. And these are the four modes of practice that we actually practice. And these are explained in the Patipadavagga, so the chapter on practice in the Anguttara Nikaya. And these modes of practice are like the Buddha's medicine for the sickness of these unprofitable directions. And so it's really beneficial for us to make effort to understand and properly develop these modes of practice. And this is so we access immeasurable loving kindness, immeasurable compassion, immeasurable joy, and immeasurable equanimity. These four un uh, profitable directions, they're rooted in non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. They're the doorways to Nibbana. So you can see that painful practice, slow realization, Dukkha Paripada, Danda Binya, leads to immeasurable loving kindness. Dukkha Paripada, Kipa Binya, which we're looking at today, leads to immeasurable compassion. And uh, Sukha Paripada, Danda Binya, pleasant practice with slow realization, leads to immeasurable joy. And Sukha Paripada, Kipa Binya, leads to immeasurable equanimity. So when we develop these modes of practice, we are also developing all 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. This translates as the wings of awakening or the enlightenment path factors. So these are the four establishments of mindfulness, the four right striving, the noble eightfold path, of course, the four bases of power, the seven enlightenment factors, the five powers, and of course, the five spiritual faculties. So when we look at the expanded table, this is more evident. So we can see from the Vitara Sutta that at the time of the Buddha, these modes of practice were explained in terms of whether a person was full of greed, hatred and delusion, how quickly their spiritual faculties manifested and how quickly they penetrated the Dhamma. So we are examining this painful practice with quick realization. And we can see that a person is full of greed and hatred and delusion. And that's why painful practice is required, painful subjects of meditation to help overcome the compulsion towards greed, hatred and delusion. And in this particular case, the five faculties manifest quickly, which is really helpful. And if you remember, we previously spoke about in the Ubeya Sutta, how the Buddha says, 
painful practice with slow relaxation is said to be inferior in both ways because it's painful and slow. And this painful practice with quick realization, it's said to be inferior because it's still painful. And then when, when it comes to this pleasant practice with slow realization, the Buddha says it's still inferior because it's slow, because the faculty. Um, and then pleasant practice, this last one, Sukhapatipada Kipa Binya, it's said to be superior in both ways because the pleasant meditation objects and it's quick realization, quick direct knowledge. Now, given it is almost 2,600 years after the Parinibbana of the, of the Buddha, it's really beneficial for us to methodically learn all four modes of practice. Most of us, whether we like it or not, are full of greed, hatred and delusion. We just have to ask whether we like being secluded from our sensual pleasures and defilements. And the honest answer is no. We find it intolerable and we continually seek pleasure in the world. So when we start to understand the painful practices, it helps us to chip away and awaken to the dangers in sensual pleasures and own up to this pleasure-seeking uh, attitude that we have. This helps us to understand and overcome the physical nutriment and contact as nutriment. These two things are what strongly bind us to the sensual realm. And as we put effort towards these modes of practice, our spiritual faculties strengthen and we can move towards the pleasant practices. So from our Seika perspective, so this is our trainee perspective, it's important to learn all these modes of practice in order to penetrate and realize the truth and liberate ourselves from this whole mass of suffering. We can't assume that we can accomplish the superior pathways without understanding the Dhamma of the other pathways. They are linked and they work together. And in fact, when it comes to the four profitable directions, you can meditate on the whole table. So this is the table we're referring to, the expanded version of the four profitable directions, which starts with these four modes of practice and ends with the divine abode. So there are 10 steps for each direction. And we start with the mode of practice, we enter into the jhanas, we establish mindfulness, we enter in, into an abiding, then we apply right striving, we contemplate the noble truth, we make a determination, we develop concentration, and a skillful means that is associated with happiness. And this results in the immeasurable divine abiding. So today we're looking at this second profitable direction, so the second doorway to Nibbana, and we will be hoping to bear the fruit of immeasurable compassion. So it's important to note that each of these profitable directions activates the Noble Eightfold Path and the other Enlightenment Path factors. So one thing to say before we actually go into the pathway is that this is not ordinary compassion, like the mundane level of compassion that we talk about and find in the world. Instead, it is immeasurable compassion that we're developing that is underpinned by a deeper understanding of contact as nutriment, of feeling and of craving and therefore suffering. So as we mentioned earlier, this mode of practice was developed by Venerable Mahamogalana and we learn about this in the Mahamogalana Sutta and 
what happens is Venerable Sariputta approaches Venerable Mahamoglana and exchanges greetings with him. When they had concluded their greetings and cordial talk, he sat down to one side and said to Venerable Mahamoglana, Friend Moglana, there are four modes of practice. What for? One, practice that is painful with sluggish direct knowledge. Two, practice that is painful with quick direct knowledge. Three, practice that is pleasant with sluggish direct knowledge. Four, practice that is pleasant with quick direct knowledge. Through which of these four modes of practice was your mind liberated from the taints by non-clinging? And then it says, of course, the four modes of practice, friend Sariputta, Venerable Mahamoglana says, it was through the mode that is painful with quick direct knowledge that my mind was liberated from the taints by non-clinging. So what do we know about Venerable Mahamoglana? Well, we know alongside Venerable Sariputta, he was one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. We also know that he was the foremost of the bhikkhu disciples among those with psychic potency, which may be connected with his proficiency at this painful practice with quick realization. Interestingly, both Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamoggalana did not attain arahantship at the same time as the 250 disciples who had also obtained ordination and received instructions from the Buddha. They both went into solitude in separate places and they continued to practice. Venerable Sariputta attained arahantship after 14 days. And in the case of Venerable Mahamoglana, he struggled prior to realizing the fruit of arahantship. His main struggle was with dullness and drowsiness. So we know that as Thinamitta. And we often refer to the Buddha's valuable teaching to Venerable Mahamoglana in the Pachalayamana Sutta on how to overcome dullness and drowsiness. He gave some very, very useful steps. And following this, following the Buddha giving assistance, Venerable Mahamoglana applied himself and with the encouragement and instruction of the Buddha, he was able to realize the fruit of arahantship in seven days. So he had quick realization. The intensity and depth of his determination during that short period must have been significant. And he was able to attain the eight liberations. He mastered the four bases of spiritual power. He became the foremost, as we just said. And he achieved facility in the modes of supernormal knowledge, so maha abhinya. So that's our inspiration for today's learning of this mode of practice. It's Venerable Mahamogalana. Let's now look at the two insight pathways. One is unprofitable and one is profitable. They, they pair together. The Pethagopadesa, it outlines the pairing between both parts, the unprofitable and profitable directions. So today we're focusing on how we overcome the craving for contact as nutriment by the painful practice with quick realization. Contact as nutriment, we know, leads to going the wrong way through hate. So this is the unprofitable side. And on the right-hand side, we have the profitable direction. So when we get sick, so the sickness appears with the unprofitable direction. And when it escalates and we become more sick, we need medicine. So the pairing with this profitable direction prescribes Buddha's exact medicine or antidote to overcome the sickness. So this painful practice with quick realization is really a non-hate path. So when you say this is a hate path, this is the non-hate path, a dosa. So in the Pethagopadesa, it says herein the pairing or play is this. 
The four nutriments go with the four modes of practice. So you see the link. Contact is nutriment. Two, painful practice with quick realization. The four perversions and the four establishments of mindfulness. So we have the perversion. There is pleasure in the painful. The medicine is the second establishment of mindfulness. We have the four clingings and the four mental absorptions. So we see the clinging of virtue and observances. The medicine is the second mental absorption. And then when it comes to the four bonds and abidings, we see that the bond of existence and the medicine is the second abiding. And then it says the body ties and the endeavors. So we see that the body tie of ill will, the medicine is the second right striving or the second endeavor. And so when it comes to the taints and the wonderful and marvelous ideas, then we have the taint of existence with the medicine of the second wonderful and marvelous idea. Likewise, when it comes to the existence and also the floods and also the determinations as the medicine, we see that the flood of existence, the medicine is the second determination. And then when it comes to the darts, the medicine is the concentrations. So we know that the dart of hate will be overcome by the concentration due to mind. And when we have consciousness establishing on feeling as a steady setting point, the medicine is the four bases of power. In the Pethagorpadesa, it says, setting points for consciousness are paired with ideas connected with happiness or associated with happiness. So we know that the four bases of power is associated with happiness. And then lastly, we see, of course, going the wrong way through hate. Well, if we get to the immeasurable compassion, that's the medicine. So the going the wrong ways is actually the medicine is the immeasurable states. And that's what it says in the Pethakobadesa. So in this way, you can see if you develop the meditations, they compromise a really gradual training. And it's contained within complete insight pathways. So the Buddha, we can see, is a very insightful doctor with very precise medicine for each ailment. So there are a number of meditations you can see even in this one pathway. So when we look specifically at this second profitable direction, the Pethagorpadesa actually says, the painful practice with quick realization when developed and practiced continuously fulfills the second meditation. The second meditation fulfilled fulfills the second establishment of mindfulness. The second establishment of mindfulness fulfilled fulfills the second abiding. The second abiding fulfilled fulfills the second right striving. The second right striving fulfilled fulfills the second wonderful and marvelous idea. The second wonderful and marvelous idea fulfilled fulfills the second determination. The second determination fulfilled fulfills the concentration due to mind. Concentration due to mind fulfilled fulfills the four bases of power. And the four bases of power fulfills immeasurable compassion. So we are going to go into each of those steps and also touch on how it overcomes the pairing. So if you recall from our understanding of the contact as nutriment, we go the wrong way due to hate because we have this mental corruption or perversion that there is pleasure, there is sukha in what is painful, dukkha. Having come into this sensual world with ignorance and craving, we keep reinforcing our pleasure-seeking tendencies. So hence why we say we're pleasure-seekers. But each time what we're met with is the truth, that no matter what object we take and no matter what sex sense contact we experience, 
And no matter what feeling arises from that, it all results in dukkha. So you can see whether it's an agreeable object, sense contact is pleasant, we get the pleasant feeling, it results in painfulness in change, vipranama dukkha. If we take the disagreeable object, which is the most obvious one, we sense contact as painful, painful feeling arises, and we get to the painfulness in pain, dukkha dukkata. That one's obvious. Then neither agreeable nor disagreeable object, sense contact is neither painful nor pleasant, and we get the neither painful nor pleasant feeling, and painfulness in construction arises. So this is sankhara dukkha. All objects, sense contact, feeling results in dukkha. So we've done this meditation using our own examples and seen how this is true. But also if you remember the Buddha's simile of the flayed cow for contact as nutriment in the Puttamangsa Sutta, the Buddha says, if she stands exposed to a wall, the creatures dwelling in the wall would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to a tree, the creatures dwelling in the tree would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to water, the creatures dwelling in the water would nibble at her. If she stands exposed to the open air, the creatures dwelling in the open air would nibble at her. Whatever that flayed cow stands exposed to, the creatures dwelling there would nibble at her. It is in such a way because that I say contact as nutriment should be seen. When the contact as nutriment is fully understood, the three kinds of feeling are fully understood. When the three kinds of feeling are fully understood, I say there is nothing further that a noble disciple needs to do. So we need to take that into our minds as well when we process feeling because whatever we experience in the world, we are like that flayed cow. And so the result will always be dukkha. So what underpins this painful practice with quick realization is direct insight into understanding feeling. If we think there is still pleasure when it is really painful, then we end up going the wrong way with hate. We come back onto this side and we don't go this way with, into immeasurable compassion. The relationship between hate and compassion is a really fascinating one. Why we are blocked from compassion is because we still hold a view or belief there is pleasure to be gained. We forget our predicament of old age, sickness and death. So when we experience pain, finding it unbearable, we shake. And so we keep going down the hate path. When we misapprehend and think that other people are experiencing pleasure, our defilements grow, such as envy, and we again go down the hate path. So if one can abandon envy, for example, you can access immeasurable compassion. That's the link. So it becomes really important to fully understand the three kinds of feeling. By understanding feeling, we, we understand contact as nutriment or the condition for feeling independent origination. And if we don't understand feeling, then we don't understand craving. So we consciously or unconsciously crave pleasure when what we're really craving is painful, what is subject to old age, sickness and death, the ignoble search. So if we really see this, even this Dhamma right at this point, and can give up craving for anything, and only Nibbana is the truth, then it's so much easier to go to immeasurable compassion instead of hate. So as mentioned a few times before this Dhamma session, there are some prerequisites that are needed for this insight pathway. And the first is the insight pathway meditation for the first doorway to Nibbana. So painful practice with slow realization and that connects with the Karaniya Metta Sutta because we can develop immeasurable loving kindness. 
So those who have followed this channel for a while should be familiar with this meditation. And we need a lot of metta to fulfill this second profitable direction, this painful practice with quick realization. The second prerequisite is knowing the insight pathway meditation on the eight things and the Buddha similes in the Portaliya Sutta, because this activates the Noble Eightfold Path and helps us to develop the four bases of power. So this is a very powerful meditation on its own, this Portaliya Sutta, because we know that the Buddha teaches householder Portaliya how to completely end um, all dealings with the world, how to attain noble retirement. So this is really how to attain Nibbana. So you can look at that in the two-part live stream on noble retirement. So let's now begin with our deep dive into the second profitable direction. So it begins, and what is the practice that is painful with quick direct knowledge? Here a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving the repulsiveness of food, perceiving non-delight in the entire world, contemplating impermanence in all conditioned phenomena, and he has the perception of death well established internally. He dwells depending upon these five training powers. The power of conviction, the power of moral shame, the power of fear of wrongdoing, the power of energy, and the power of wisdom. These five faculties arise in him prominently. The faculty of conviction, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, the faculty of concentration, and the faculty of wisdom. Because these five faculties are prominent, he quickly attains the immediacy condition for the destruction of the taints. This is called practice that is painful with correct, with quick direct knowledge or realization. So what this tells us is when we cultivate the painful practice with quick realization, we contemplate painful objects of meditation and we rely on our trainee powers, our seikabala and the spiritual faculties strongly ma uh, manifesting. So this is how we're able to quickly attain what the Buddha calls the immediacy condition. This means that we gain the concentration of mind that leads to direct insight and path and fruit and will eventually result in the destruction of the taints. So then we have the five training powers. We know these to be the power of conviction. So to have this, we need to be endowed with conviction in the enlightenment of the Tathagata. The power of moral shame is we have to have a sense of moral shame towards bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct, and uh, a shame towards acquiring evil, unwholesome states or qualities. And the same for power of fear of wrongdoing. We fear wrongdoing, we fear mod bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct, and we fear acquiring evil, unwholesome qualities because we know that there's a karmic result. The power of energy, we have the energy aroused for abandoning unwholesome qualities. And we want to acquire wholesome qualities. So we're strong and we're firm in our exertion of energy. And we don't shirk our duties regarding cultivating wholesome states. And the power of wisdom is we're wise. We possess wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble, penetrative, and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So from the Kutta Sutta, the Buddha says, Among these five trainees' powers, the power of wisdom is the foremost, the one that holds all the others in place, the one that unifies them. So this is why we always emphasize gaining direct insight or seeing in our meditation with the wisdom eye. 
And then when it comes to the five spiritual faculties, uh, the Buddha says in a number of suttas that for them to arise prominently, that means in Pali, panchindriyang adhimatani patubhavanti. So adhimatani means in excess or superabundance. And patubhavanti, it translates as how they manifest, how they arise, how they spring into existence. So a literal translation would be, we want our spiritual faculties to arise, to manifest in excess or superabundance. So this is what it means prominently or strongly. So again, the faculty of conviction is similar to the power of conviction. We have that conviction towards the perfect enlightenment of the Tathagata. And faculty of energy is the same as the power of energy. We arouse energy towards overcoming unwholesome states and arouse them towards uh, cultivating wholesome ones and maintaining and guarding the ones that are already present. Then we have the faculty of mindfulness. So here we're mindful, possessing supreme mindfulness and discretion. So we remember what has been taught. We recollect what has been done and said long ago. And when it comes to the faculty of concentration, we gain the concentration. We gain the unification or one-pointedness of the mind. And we make release the object. And then faculty of wisdom is similar to the power of wisdom. So it's really understanding the arising and passing away. And we possess the wisdom that leads to the destruction of suffering. So the Buddha confirms in the Asavakaya Sutta that it is because one has developed and cultivated the five spiritual faculties that, one, that by the destruction of the taints in this very life enters into and dwells into the liberation of mind, the liberation of wisdom, and realizes it directly for oneself, that direct knowledge. So when we develop and cultivate the five spiritual faculties, and we want them to be prominent and sharp, uh, this is for ultimate liberation. And so every time we apply ourselves to insight pathways or sutta meditations, this is what we're doing. We're sharpening our spiritual faculties. So let's briefly revisit the meditation objects. So they're the same as for the first doorway to Nibbana, so painful practice with slow realization. So for both painful practices, we have to start with these painful objects of meditation. So the Buddha explains in the Dutya Sanya Sutta, this is on Nikaya chapter 7, discourse number 49, when we develop and cultivate these particular perceptions, so these meditation objects, they're of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having deathless as its consummation. So it's very good to meditate on these. When it comes to contemplating the first one, the unattractiveness of the body, the Buddha says the mind draws back from sexual intercourse. With the second one, perceiving repulsiveness of food, the mind draws back from craving tastes. The third one, perceiving non-delight in the entire world, the mind draws back from the world's beautiful things. And the fourth thing is, contemplating impermanence in all conditioned phenomena, the mind draws back from material possessions, so gain honor and fame. And then the fifth one is, when you have the perception of death, well established internally, the mind draws back from attachment to life. So we can see if we develop them, we really establish a strong foundation that turns away from the world and goes towards Nibbana. So there are many different options for t undertaking these contemplations. So let's run 
through a few. So when you contemplate the unattractiveness of the body, so this is the asubha anupathikaya, we can contemplate 32 parts of the body. We, re we can uh, reflect from the tops of our head to the bottom, to the soles of our feet, that this is just surrounded by skin and full of various unclean things. So this is from the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. Or if we refer to the Gandha Sutta, we can contemplate this body as a boil, reflecting whatever oozes out of it is unclean, that there's a stench from the oozing out and it's disgusting. So whatever would be discharged from it is unclean, there's a stench and there's something disgusting that comes out. There's a very similar one for the Vijaya Sutta. And then there's also the charnel ground contemplation. So you reflect on uh, different stages of corpse that are have been dead for one day, two days, three days. And the, the main idea is to see the bloatedness, the livid, the festering nature of it. And so when you compare it to your own body, you also see this body is the same. It has the same nature. It's the same kind. You can't go beyond that. And so again, we see this explained in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta. So when it comes to then the repulsiveness of food, we can contemplate a plate of food that's been left out for one day, three days, five days, ten days more. What's that like? We can also contemplate discarded food, food that's in the waste bin. We can also contemplate undigested food, whether internally or externally. Would we like to touch it? Would we like to taste it? Would we like to smell it? Would we like to see it? Would we like to hear it? When we did Dukkha Patipada Danda Binya, we combined uh, contemplating unattractiveness of the body with the repulsiveness of food because we looked at undigested food as our meditation object. So the same thing could be done here for this Patipada. Another example is to contemplate for repulsiveness of food is to use the simile that the Buddha gives in the Puttamangsa Sutta, so contemplating uh, the sun's flesh. And another simple contemplation is also to contemplate that each of us with this kind of body is like a walking toilet. Whatever food or drink we consume, it has to be excreted. So we see that it has that foul nature. And then the fourth one, contemplating impermanence in all, in all conditioned phenomena. We can actually contemplate the four-line verse that we've contemplated before from the Chunda Sutta. We looked at this in the Profitable Path Dhamma session where we looked at by giving merit grows, no hate is stored for one restrained. Those who are skilled abandon evil ways and the exhaustion of lust, hatred and delusion. One attains complete exhaustion. So that meditation is also applicable here. It's also possible to contemplate from the Girimananda Sutta that whatever we're troubled by or repelled by or ashamed by, so Atiyati, Harayati, Jaguchati, that all conditioned phenomena has this particular quality. So this is another way of contemplating that. And then also the other way is to look at the Penapindupama Sutta. Buddha gives uh, different similes for the five aggregates. And so you look at how they come to arise and path away, pass away. And you see that through these five similes that all these conditioned phenomena is seen as empty, hollow, void, and, and uh, in their nature. And then another one is to really look at from the Kajaniya Sutta, all conditions are constructed. 
So what is conditioned that they construct? And you see it's what we construct is conditioned form as form. We construct conditioned feeling as feeling. We construct conditioned perception as perception. We construct conditioned volitional formations as volitional formation. And we construct conditioned consciousness as, as consciousness. And so what we really construct is all conditioned. And so we, what we do in that particular meditation is to acknowledge the troubling nature of endlessly constructing and reconstructing. And the outcome always leads to dukkha. So there are a number of options to contemplate there. And then when you look at perceiving non-delight in the world, uh, this one I missed out here, again, you can look at the Girimananda Sutta. If you contemplate that, if we refrain from any engagement, clinging, any mental standpoints or determinations, adherences and underlying tendencies that we regard in the world, that we want to abandon them without clinging to them. This is the same thing as if we meditate on the Haladikani Sutta. We went through that session on why it's difficult to renunciate the world. That meditation is also very useful there. And then when it comes to the fifth one, where we look at the perception of death well established internally, then we know that if we meditate to contemplate a dead body, then if we lie down next to that dead body and reflect that the body is of the same nature, then after a number of days, we really see that decom decomposition process. And in your meditation, it can be quite powerful because we, th we contemplate what comes out of the nine holes. We contemplate what happens to the body, what comes to feed on it, and the mind genuinely expands. So what we really see is that the body is impermanent, suffering, subject to decay, and it's not worth regarding as me and mine. That becomes very strong in that. So when you begin to cultivate this painful practice with quick realization, the encouragement is really to pick your best meditation. So I've run through a number of different options for the five. And when you become really skilled at it and you really want a strong foundation in this quick practice or this painful practice with quick realization, what you do is you can harness all five objects. You actually meditate on all five objects. But for the process of learning this meditation, what you do is you pick your best meditation out of the five. If you find that this really resonates with you, then you, you look at into all five different meditation objects because that becomes the strong foundation for overcoming contact as nutriment. And so when that's well developed, one does not shake. So when you do whatever meditation is your best one, and when you contemplate and you see the truth, that's where you enter into the first jhana. When you enter into the first jhana, you're still thinking and examining in order to enter into the first jhana and rapture and pleasure born of the seclusion from sensual pleasures arises and you're secluded from defilements and so the mind becomes concentrated that's our first taste of nibbana but in order to get there we had to do so much thinking and examining of this painful meditation object so when the mind is established in right view what we realize is you don't need to continue to think and contemplate so if you were contemplating on uh, the repulsiveness of food for example you no longer need to keep uh, thinking and examining on it once you reach the first jhana so there's an immediate relief that you get from the first jhana and so you let go of the dukkha associated with the meditation object and you let go of the thinking and examining and so you enter into the second jhana and that becomes very obvious how you enter into the second jhana because 
when you graduate to the second jhana, the pitisukha, the rapture and the happiness, the pleasure of the second jhana is more intense. So you feel it in your body. It feels like you're sp it's spinning around your body. And in the mind, the mind feels that it's being infused with pleasure. And so you don't need to do anything more to get the pleasure. It's just there. And so sometimes you feel like when it's so intense, you feel like you might want to lift off. That's the feeling of the second jhana. So when the mind concentrates in the second jhana, you feel like this meditation is much more stable, definitely more stable than the first jhana. And so you have this internal confidence that arises that, ah, this higher concentration is good. And so the account that the, the Buddha gives in encouraging Venerable Mahamoglana also gives some insight into this. So Venerable Mahamoglana is actually explaining it to the bhikkhus. He says, Here, friends, while I was alone in seclusion, a reflection arose in my mind thus. It is said, the second jhana, the second jhana, what now is the second jhana? Then, friends, it occurred to me, here with the subsiding of thought and examination, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal confidence and unification of mind, is without thought and examination, and has rapture and happiness born of concentration. This is called the second jhana. Then, friends, with the subsiding of thought and examination, I entered and dwelt in the second jhana. While I dwelt therein, perception and attention assailed me. Then, friends, the Blessed One came to me by means of spiritual power and said this, Moggallana, Moggallana, do not be negligent, Brahman, regarding the second jhana. Steady your mind in the second jhana. Unify your mind in the second jhana. Concentrate your mind in the second jhana. Then on a later occasion, with the subsiding of thought and examination, I entered and dwelt in the second jhana, which has internal confidence and unification of mind, is without thought and examination, and has rapture and happiness born of concentration. So it's very clear what got us into the jhanas, how we had to contemplate and meditate on uh, painful objects. All that thinking and examining can be, can be dropped. We actually drop even thinking about the form at that level and so that's how we enter into the second jhana so it is through the second jhana that we overcome clinging to virtue and observances the sila bata upadana that we see in contact as nutriment the unprofitable direction because we have this rapture and pleasure we're no longer seeking pleasure externally so we're not thinking if i buy this thing then i'll be happy or if i become skilled at this profession then i'll be happy if i do that university course then i'll be happy because i'll get this career or if i marry into that family then i'll be happy or if i practice these ascetic practices then i'll be happy or even the thought that if i go and ordain at that monastery then i'll be happy all those kinds of things are not there because in the second jhana, we're not clinging to any expectation of seeking happiness in the future because we have this intense rapture and happiness right now in the meditation. So from the second jhana, what we come to now is this second establishment of mindfulness. And what is this second establishment of mindfulness? It is the mindfulness of feeling. So we know from the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta, and this is the one in Anguttara Nikaya, chapter 4, discourse number 41. The Buddha says that when we know feelings as they arise, as they remain present, as they disappear or pass away, the result is concentration that leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension. 
So what is the meditation that we've done before? It's the other Samadhi Bhavana Sutta in Sangyutta Nikaya chapter 22, discourse number 5. <clears throat> and the Buddha says in this particular sutta, and because what is the origin of feeling? How does feeling arise? Here because one seeks delight, one welcomes, one remains holding. And what is it that one seeks delight in? What does one welcome? To what does one remain holding? One seeks delight in feeling, welcomes it and remains holding. So this we remember is Vedanang Abhinandati Abhiwadati Ajusayatititi. So as a consequence of this, delight arises. Delight in feeling is clinging. With one's clinging as condition, existence comes to be. With existence as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging and death. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair comes to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. And then the Buddha says, and what because is the passing away of feeling? So this is the Atangama, the, the one before was the Samudaya. So here because one does not seek delight, one does not welcome, one does not remain holding. And what is it that one does not seek delight in? What doesn't one welcome? To what doesn't one remain holding? One does not seek delight in feeling, one does not welcome it, does not remain holding to it. So we know this as Vedanang Nabinandati, Nabiwadati, Najosaya Titati. So as a consequence of this, delight in form ceases, with the cessation of delight comes cessation of clinging, with the cessation of clinging, cessation of existence and so on. And so we get such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. So for this step in our meditation, we first contemplate the arising of feeling and we understand due to dependent origination, these conditions, rebirth and the whole mass of suffering. And then we contemplate the passing away of feeling and understand that this leads to the cessation of birth and the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. So the Buddha says in the Abhinandana Sutta that one who seeks delight in feeling seeks delight in suffering. So one who seeks delight in suffering, I say, is not freed from suffering. So if one does not seek delight in feeling, does not seek delight in suffering. So one who does not seek delight in suffering, I say, is freed from suffering. So that is what we see when we meditate on this Samodaya Atangama, arising and passing away of feeling, that, of course, in the Abhinandada Sutta, the Buddha mentions the other four aggregates as well. So in our meditation, we see that the arising and passing away of this second jhana, for example, so we reach the second jhana and we understand that it is also constructed. So if we crave the rapture and pleasure of this second jhana that we have attained, then that feeling conditions craving and it ultimately generates rebirth and the whole mass of suffering. And so when we contemplate arising and passing away feeling and establishing this mindfulness of feeling, what we're doing is applying the medicine to overcome the perversion that there is pleasure in the painful. And what have we said when we practice? We know all feeling results in dukkha. So even the second jhana, we, when we fall from the second jhana, when it changes, we experience dukkha. There's no refuge in that second jhana. So this is the truth that we, we examine and repeat as we go through this pathway. So if, as we said in this, this session and many other sessions, when we birth this kind of body into the sensual world, we enter as pleasure seekers. We have desire and lust for pleasure and happiness in sensual objects. 
what we come to realize as our wisdom grows and particularly when we develop this painful practice with quick realization is that we're not really pleasure seekers but due to the perversion thinking that there's pleasure in the painful we're actually dukkha seekers we have misapprehended pleasure because it's really dukkha so this is why the buddha says when we meditate on the rising and passing away of the five aggregates it's the cause and condition for wisdom like wisdom fundamental for this spiritual life but wisdom that gets fulfilled and what happens is we can attain liberation so we gain wisdom of the suffering nature of form that we are subject to old age sickness and death but now we're gaining wisdom that whatever feeling we experience has the same suffering nature painfulness in change painfulness in pain painfulness in construction so when we really see this we awaken to our reality that this whole construction is really a tragedy it's a dire predicament we no longer when we see this we no longer want to be deceived that there is pleasure in the painful and so what we understand is what's in the world is actually painful it's suffering and so the true pleasure that we seek is actually nibbana so we continue to develop this meditation so when we have this insight from establishing mindfulness of feeling then we come to the second abiding so we know this as the divine abode the brahma vihara so the four immeasurables and the buddha explains the divine abode to a brahman in the venagapura sutta this is anguttarnikaya chapter 3 discourse number 63 and the buddha says but master gotama what is the divine high and luxurious bed that at present you gain at will without trouble or difficulty here brahman when i'm I'm dwelling in dependence on a village or town. In the morning I dress, take my bowl and robe and enter that village or town for alms. After the meal when I have returned from the alms round, I enter a grove. I collect some grass or leaves that I find there into a pile and then sit down. Having folded my legs crosswise and straightened my body, I establish mindfulness in front of me. Then I dwell pervading one quarter <clears throat> with a mind imbued with loving kindness. likewise the second quarter the third quarter the fourth quarter thus above below across and everywhere and all around i dwell pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving kindness vast exalted measureless without en- enmity without ill will and then the buddha explains the same for compassion for altruistic joy and for equanimity And then he says to the Brahmin when I'm in such a state if I walk back and forth on that occasion my walking back and forth is divine if I'm standing on that occasion my standing is divine if I'm sitting on that occasion my sitting is divine if I lie down on that occasion this is my divine high and luxurious bed so to develop the divine abode we need to cultivate the meditation we did for painful practice with slow realization because the result of that insight pathway is immeasurable loving kindness or metta apamana in pali so if you've been following the sutta meditations on this channel then you should already be skilled at this insight pathway what underpins this mode of practice so painful practice with slow realization is that we are not deceived by the physical nutriment and we understand and have penetrated the first noble truth of suffering 
So let's quickly go through how we do that meditation. So it has the same five meditation objects. You pick your best meditation. When you contemplate, you reach the first jhana or the first mental absorption. And then what you do is you establish the mindfulness of the body. So that's the first establishment of mindfulness. What we contemplate is the arising and passing away of form. So the arising is rupang, abhinandati, abhivatati, ajrasayatitati. We take delight, welcome, remain holding to form. And eventually it conditions delight, delight conditions clinging and so forth. This leads to rebirth and the whole mass of suffering. Then we contemplate the passing away. So rupang, nabhinandati, nabhivatati, nabhivatati. So we're not taking delight in form, we're not welcoming, we're not remaining holding to form. And so what happens is with the cessation of craving, there's the cessation of rebirth and the whole mass of suffering. So with that insight from mindfulness of the body, we attain to the first abiding, which is the heavenly abode, the four jhanas, which means we're touching Nibbana. So when we get a glimpse of that, if you remember from our session, that this is like being away from the cesspool. So we've been living in the cesspool, or the alternative way of looking at it is the worm in the cow dung. So living in the cesspool we thought was great, but we didn't realize that it was actually a cesspool. So when we're in the heavenly abode, when we touch Nibbana, we actually see something is better outside of the cesspool. And so the same analogy works also for the worm in the cow dung. The worm thinks that the cow dung is fantastic, not realizing that it's actually dung and that there's something better away from that. And so when you see that, you make effort for the first right striving, which is to prevent unarisen, unwholesome thoughts from arising. So these are the sensual thoughts, the ill will thoughts, the harmful thoughts, because what we recognize is if we allow these kinds of unskilled thoughts to come back into the mind, then we immediately uh, fall from the jhanas and we're back in the cesspool. And so that's why we make effort, that first right striving to remain in the heavenly abode. And in the heavenly abode, we then contemplate the first noble truth of suffering, that with birth, we're subject to old age, sickness and death. These bodies that we birth, these forms, they inevitably fail us, that we're all death bound. So there's no refuge from suffering. So we just remain bound to coming back to a cesspool, transmigrating birth to birth in sansara. So when we penetrate the first noble truth, we remember the verse from the Datu Vipanga Sutta where the Buddha says to Pukasati, what is false has a deceptive nature, but what is true is undeceptive, and that is Nibbana. So in Pali, Musayang, Mosadamang, Tang Sachang, Yang, Amosadamang, Nibbanang. When we reflect on this, we realize, having understood that everything in the world is false and deceptive, we make this determination for truth. And that truth is for Nibbana, the supreme safety and lasting happiness. And so with the desire for Nibbana, concentration due to desire arises. That's the Chanda Samadhi. And when we have the Chanda Samadhi, we know that we need to restrain our sense faculties because if we don't, then we get enticed back into the central world. So we want to protect the concentration due to desire. We don't want to covet anything in the world and we don't want the sadness that follows, which are the enemies of concentration due to desire. So when we are controlled in our sense faculties, we have this Indriya Sangvara. This is where it meets Karaniya Metta Sutta. So 
This is Santindrio Chanipakocha. We become prudent having seen all this truth. And what we do out of right view is we realize we don't want to lift ourselves to any particular group or family. There's no point because we would still be subject to old age, sickness and death. We face the same predicament. And so knowing that we don't want to come back into Mara's cage. And so we cultivate metta to all living beings with this understanding that everybody is not exempt. We're all in the same boat. We're all in Mara's cage. And so we reach immeasurable loving kindness, spreading loving kindness with no boundaries. So if you can do the whole painful practice with slow realization, that's a very, very strong basis for loving kindness. That's the recommended way of learning this jnana patha, to actually include that within painful practice with quick realization. Now, if you're new or not as confident with painful practice with slow, slow realization, then it's possible to reflect on coming out of the cesspool or the worm in the cow dung and seeing that all living beings are in the same predicament, that we're all subject to this first noble truth of suffering. We never get what we want. We never get lasting happiness. We're all death bound. And so when you see that no one is exempt from old age sickness and death and this whole mass of suffering, you can actually cultivate loving kindness to all living beings. You have no preferences. You just realize we're all the same at this level. We're all in this predicament of death bound nature, suffering nature. The other way to also reflect it is the five subjects to frequently contemplate because we know that's underpinned by the first noble truth of suffering. So in the same way, you reflect on those subjects of aging, sickness, death, separation from everything and everyone that is dear and pleasing, and also that we're the owners of our karma and so forth. The Buddha says to reflect in that meditation that we're not the only ones that these things apply to. And so when we see that no one is exempt from the predicament, it's also that we see this is not about personal dukkha. This is about this collective universal predicament. And so right view gets established. And so this is another way that we can cultivate loving kindness to all living beings. So in any case, our meditation, what we need to do is we need to cultivate immeasurable loving kindness with no boundaries, no preferences, no limits. Now the question arises is why do we need loving kindness for this painful practice with quick realization? What's the point of this? And the point is because we've birthed this particular body that is subject to aging. As this body ages from the moment we are born, we are constantly affected and afflicted by this. So when we don't have wisdom about this universal truth, this collective predicament, what happens? We get angry and sad. So, for example, when our hair turns grey or it starts to thin, when we lose vitality or strength in the body, when our eyesight worsens, when our taste buds age, when we don't get the same satisfaction from food, when our hearing diminishes, when our skin loses its elasticity, when we're overcome with wrinkles, all those things, they affect us all the time. And these are all the physical changes, but we also have the mental defilements too. So it's important to reflect quite honestly and not to deny thinking, oh, I don't get angry about getting old and, oh, there's nothing wrong with this thing. But the thing is, when you look with real honesty, you actually see that we really do experience aging. And when we look in the mirror, are we happy to look in the mirror at the whole of our body without grooming as it ages? Are we happy with our faculties when we, when we age? Not just our appearance, but our hearing, our sight, our taste, our smell, our balance, our memory, our vitality. 
So there's something very important there because we're always actually going the wrong way with hate because of the anger, the, the sadness that arises from our collective predicament. So another way of looking at it is also from our recent Dhamma session on the Portalia Sutta because when we contemplate the Buddha's seven similes to achieve noble retirement in all ways, when we come to the last simile, which was the tree laden with fruits, what we came to understand is that it's not possible to simply live with these fruits, whether it's working and living with sensual pleasures, or like Portalia, who gave up his material wealth to his children and was living a simple life, or a person who gives up the world and just lives on the fruit of their meditations, so the higher concentrations. But in that simile in Portalia Sutta, we're like the person who climbs the tree to take the fruits, and then someone comes along to cut down the tree to get the fruit. And what's come down to cut the tree? It's aging. So that's why the last simile is connected with association with anger. We end up associated with anger due to aging, despite whatever pleasure we think we get from the world. And so we saw in the Portalia Sutta is that we come into the world and we begin with killing and living with hate. That's the first thing. But when we end, we're afflicted with anger and we're still living with hate. So our whole life, when you understand that meditation, it starts with hate and it ends with hate. So our entire life, in a nutshell, is imbued with that and, of course, with greed and delusion as well. But we keep going back for the same again and again unless we penetrate the Dhamma. So you can see why we develop loving kindness and this divine abode in order to overcome the bond of existence, this Bhava Yoga. So we need loving kindness as the medicine throughout this, this, this inside pathway to help us to overcome the hate. The Buddha says that it's always good to dwell with loving kindness than it is to dwell with anger and hate. That seems like a no-brainer, but the real truth is that the danger is great if we allow our mind to reside, to dwell in anger or hate. At the point of death, if this is the case, with the breakup of the body, we would expect an unhappy destination. So what we don't realize is this contact as nutriment, we constantly go down wrong way due to hate. It's due to aging, it's due to sadness, having to birth into this kind of form, having to experience the failure of, of these pleasurable feelings. And even while we're activating the insight pathway, as we're meditating on this painful practice with quick realization, we need loving kindness to help us to fulfill this this pathway so we don't veer off we don't go back to the unprofitable direction so this is essentially why we need immeasurable loving kindness for this meditation it's truly the antidote for anger the antidote for hate so when we reach the divine abode we now come to the second right striving so this is where we make effort towards abandoning already arisen unwholesome or unskilled states so in the padana sutta specifically on the second right striving it says he generates desire for the abandoning of arisen bad unwholesome states he makes an effort arouses energy applies his mind and strives so as we already know the arisen bad unwholesome states are rooted in greed hatred and delusion it's out of greed hatred and delusion that we came to be born 
So we don't want to follow that. We want to follow the Buddha's path of non-greed, not hate, non-delusion. Otherwise, we would do the same again. So if there are any unwholesome states that have already arisen in the mind, whether they're sensual thoughts, ill will thoughts, or harmful thoughts, what we do in our meditation is make sure we abandon them. So we actually do that. If there's anything there, we abandon them. So these unwholesome states arise whenever we're affected by what we could consider an alteration in feeling. So when our pleasure subsides, ill will arises. Or when we make contact with something unpleasant, ill will arises. So this second right striving is to abandon unwholesome states. And it really helps us to overcome this body tie of ill will, this biapada kayagantha. And of course, this right striving helps us to maintain loving kindness that we've just developed. Otherwise, we would fall from that. So we need this again for this meditation. So we now contemplate in, in this pathway the noble truth of the origin of suffering. This is the second wonderful and marvelous idea. So in a number of suttas, such as the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, or the Samaditi Sutta, the Buddha says, and what is the origin of suffering? It is craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delight in this and that. That is craving for sensual pleasure, so we know this in Pali as Kama Tanha, craving for existence, so Bhava Tanha, and craving for non-existence, Vibhava Tanha. This is called the origin of suffering. So now in our meditation, following this insight pathway, we take a closer look at with the arising of feeling as condition, craving comes to arise. So this is what the Buddha calls craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence and craving for non-existence. So Pethagopadesa tells us, and we know this just by looking at dependent origination, craving has the characteristic of generating another birth. And so it's a real danger point for us because it's the origin of suffering. It's a real danger point for us to not understand craving. So craving for sensual pleasures, this karma tanha, is where we are happy to live experiencing pleasure with sensual objects and desires. So we birth this body out of craving for sensual pleasures. We wanted to come back thinking that there's pleasure in material things, in the people, in families and groups, all that kind of thing. And then we have craving for existence, bhavatanha, where we're happy to live experiencing pleasure even without sensuality. And then craving for non-existence, this vibhavatanha, we're happy to live experiencing pleasure even without the form. So what we're doing in all cases is we're demanding pleasurable feeling. So that's the condition for craving to arise. Feeling is the condition for craving to arise. Now, Craving for sensuality is what leads to craving for existence and both of them together lead to craving for non-existence. So in this part of the meditation, what we need to remember is what we established when we established mindfulness of feeling. That all feeling, whether it's pleasurable, painful or neither pleasure, or painful nor pleasurable feeling, it all results in dukkha. So we cannot construct lasting pleasure. It all results in dukkha. So when we examine our own examples, for example, our body ages, so we experience painfulness in change. We have to bear with sickness in loved ones and, and death, so we experience painfulness in pain. 
we meditate and we get to the higher concentrations, but even though they last for a long time, we fall from these happy states. So we experience painfulness in construction. So we're continuously meeting pain and suffering over and over again. So Buddha says, you know, the origin of suffering is, is craving. So when we misapprehend feeling and that conditions craving, we're misapprehending pleasure. What is what is what we thought is pleasurable is really pain and suffering. And so we seek rebirth with that misapprehension and we get this whole mass of suffering over and over. So in the meditation, if you really get that breakthrough, if you really, really see it, so it's one thing to theoretically talk about it right now, but if you do this insight pathway and you get to this point and you really see it, it's like this real aha moment, a real like, oh my goodness, it's all fake. It's like you've discovered fake news. It's all fake. It's all deceptive. And with this understanding, what we're really overcoming is the taint of existence. You realize we construct something that is fatally flawed based on a huge misconception. And when you realize that you realize, I don't want it anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And so you really see that craving is the problem because you've understood feeling. And, and so when you see it, you say, I want to give up craving. And so this is what it means when the Buddha talks about understanding the three aspects of the Four Noble Truths. So when it comes to this second noble truth, we, we realize, okay, there is this origin of suffering, which is craving. The second um, aspect to it is craving is to be abandoned. So when you get the insight strongly in this meditation that it's just constructed on lies and deception and it's just a really bad deal, you go, I want to give craving up. It's based on lies. And so when you genuinely want to give it up, you get to this determination for relinquishment. So this is your second determination. And it's a really genuine one because you've really seen the truth about feeling and craving. So we looked at this a little when we looked at the exposition of the elements in the Dato Vipanga Sutta. And we also looked at it in the Sunakata Sutta as well about spiritual progress and attainment. So the Buddha says in Dato Vibhanga Sutta, formerly when he was ignorant, he undertook and accepted acquisitions. Now he has abandoned them, cut them off at the root, made them like a palm stump, done away with them so that they are no longer subject to future arising. Therefore, a bhikkhu possessing this relinquishment possesses the supreme foundation of relinquishment. For this bhikkhu is the supreme noble relinquishment, namely the re relinquishment of all acquisitions. So a foolish person will take up and accept acquisitions that are the basis or the foundation for clinging to rebirth in samsara. But a wise person who's had that aha moment by understanding the second noble truth of suffering will want to abandon anything associated with coming back into samsara. And so these acquisitions, these mental acquisitions, uh, in Pali, the word is upadhi. When we genuinely determine that we want to re relinquish them, that's the highest noble relinquishment that the Buddha talks about because it leads to the cessation of all suffering. So as we said before, upadhi 
it's translated from Pali as acquisition, but it's also translated as attachments or any things that we're uh, attached to that are the basis for clinging to rebirth, so the grounds for coming back into existence. Now, we've briefly covered these before. In the Chula Nidesa, which is attributed to Venerable Sariputta, in the Metagu Sutta, there's reference to it. And so in the Chula Nidesa, related to Medagu Manavapucha, the Buddha had asked um, or had replied to Venerable Metagu's question about the origin of suffering. And the Buddha had said in the Metagu Sutta, this is Sutta Nipata 5.4, the Buddha says, sufferings in their many forms in the world originate based on acquisition. The ignorant dullard who creates acquisition encounters suffering again and again. Therefore, understanding one should not create acquisition. So that aligns with Dato Vibhanga Sutta. So the list of 10 are acquisition through craving. So when you still have the craving, misapprehending feeling. When you still have acquisition through view. So when you have the wrong view about sansara and anything associated with that. Acquisition through defilements. So when you're happy to indulge and breed defilements that lean towards sansara away from Nibbana, acquisition through Kamma. So even if we restrain all our sense faculties, there's still past Kamma and there are certain volitional formations arise. It's actually the development of the mind or development of wisdom, sorry, Vimansa Samadhi that helps us. uh, Yeah, Vimansa Samadhi, development of wisdom, which is the concentration due to investigation that helps us to actually overcome this which is part of the four bases of power but we'll come to that but also the the fifth on the list is misconduct so it's misconduct we've seen this in the Potaliya Sutta and and many other suttas that misconduct is what if we cling to these things we think it's okay it keeps us bound to sansara there's also these nutriments Uh, if we acquire these nutriments. So that's why we try and understand the four nutriments, physical contact, mental volition as nutriment and consciousness as nutriment because we keep going down the wrong ways that bind us to sansara. There's also acquisition through anger. There's acquisition to the the four clung to elements. So clinging to sensual desire, clinging to virtue and observances, clinging to views, clinging to me, the theory of me and mine. So, and then the last two are, we, we have these acquisitions of the six internal sense bases and the six classes of consciousness. So these are the, the mental acquisitions that bind us. So when you have this very strong understanding and insight into the second noble truth of suffering, and you make this determination that I want to give that up, it's just a fatal, flawed predicament that, that I keep coming back to then what you're saying is I want to give up all these things because all those things, all those upadis, acquisitions, are linked to sansara. So when we suffer or experience dukkha, with birth as the condition, we experience old age, sickness and death and the whole mass of suffering, we never get what we want, it all originates with those things. It's all based on those acquisitions. It's also all caused by those acquisitions, all conditioned and constructed by those acquisitions. So we need to give them all up, cut them off at the root, make them like a palm stump, do away with them so that we're no longer subject to future arising.
So this is what the Buddha calls paramena chagaditana, so supreme determination for relinquishment. So in very simple terms, it's the equivalent of saying, nabi nandati, nabi wadati, titati. We don't want to take delight. We don't want to welcome. We don't want to remain holding to any of those things. And so with this determination, that's how we overcome the flood of existence. And so what we really understand is truth and wisdom that we need to give up craving for what is false and deceptive. Because what is true, undeceptive, lasting is the supreme safety of Nibbana. And so that is what our determination for relinquishment is based on. And so if we establish this, then we reach concentration due to mind. So by reaching concentration due to mind, we've overcome the dart of hate. So this is the dosa sala, because we've removed the poison that perceived that there's pleasure in the painful. It's no longer there. The poison is no longer still affecting us because the whole way through this particular insight pathway, we keep reconfirming there's no pleasure in the painful. It's all painful. It's all dukkha. So loving kindness, this method that we've already developed, it's important that it's still there. If we don't have loving kindness, it's very difficult to have this concentration due to mind. So that's also we see like metta, metta, metta the whole way through. So in the Chanda Samadhi Sutta, the Buddha says, Bhikkhus, if a bhikkhu gains concentration, gains one-pointedness of mind based upon mind, this is called concentration due to mind. He generates desire for the non-arising of arisen evil unwholesome states, makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. He also generates desire for the abandoning of uh, arisen evil unwholesome states. And again, same effort, arousing energy, applying mind and strives. The same thing for generating desire for the arising of unarisen unwholesome unwho um, states and generating desire for the maintenance of arisen wholesome states. These are called volitional formations of striving. So when you look at this, this concentration due to mind is very, very important because we it's a very active process. It's not a passive one. Like when you look at developing insight pathways, sutta meditations, part of getting to concentration is always about active, active, not passive. You need to make effort. You need to strive in order to attain to wisdom, wisdom pathway. And so when you do that, you're also protecting what you have already developed. So this whole way through, you would have noticed, even while we keep mentioning that we need metta here, we need metta there, it's because Part of it is also you're protecting this meditation. At any point, you can veer off, you can fall away. It only takes one hateful thought in order for that to happen, one sensual thought for that to happen. So that's why even with this concentration due to mind, there are volitional um, formations of striving associated with it. So we should also remember that concentration due to mind is associated with right speech and right effort. Because it's part of activating the Noble Eightfold Path. In order to maintain this concentration, we need to make the effort towards particularly the speech. And that includes the internal speech. So it's not simply that we ex express verbally and speak out. But it's also the internal chatter, the internal berating, insulting, the inner talk, 
the narrative that goes on in our minds. When things happen externally, there's always something happening internally. We tell people off, we complain, we judge, we insult, we derogate, we measure, we divide. If you examine your own internal talk, it's the same. It's the same as how we might verbalize. It might be what we don't verbalize, but we say in our minds. So what it comprises of is false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and also frivolous speech. And it's all rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion. So concentration due to mind will get shaken by greed, hatred, and delusion. So it gets affected by this kind of internal talk. So to maintain and give power to the concentration due to mind there's a, a number of things that are quite helpful one of them is what we did in the portalia sutta so buddha out of the eight things taught two particular things about lying and divisive speech so he said with the support of truthful speech false speech is to be abandoned and he said the he gave the simile of the grass torch for lying and then also the second one was with the support of non-divisive speech, divisive speech is abandoned. So the simile he gave there was the man being dragged to the charcoal pit by two strong men. And as we know, these two things, truthful speech and non-divisive speech, are associated with the development of virtue. So this is the Bhavita Sila, which when we develop it leads to the concentration due to mind. So if we contemplate these two things and their similes, that's how we can reinforce and provide support for the concentration due to mind. So that's a very useful part to this, this uh, step in the insight pathway. Now, why would we really want to do this? And to answer it again, it's really that we might still perceive that there's pleasure to be gained externally, that our concentration shakes or weakens, that we think, uh, certain things and then we fall from the concentration what what we're saying is that sickness can enter the mind and that's when we get deceived that there is pleasure in the painful and something is worth taking as me and mine it could even be views but also we're constantly measuring and evaluating so we might think oh this is better than that if I do this I'll get that pleasure if I did it before and I got that pleasure if I do it again I'll experience that pleasure so even certain thoughts that come into the mind, when I was meditating in that country, I had a better concentration, so maybe I should leave here and go, go back to that country again. Or someone who's ordained might have this uh, perception in the mind that says, oh, I'd be happier if I disrobed and I reverted to lay life or some, something like that. There's all kinds of things that can come to the mind. But the reality is that all these things are lies that we tell ourselves. It's like the Buddha simile, we burn ourselves with the grass torch. Or due to being divisive, we measure and compare, which is what we did in some of those examples. And we're holding on to pleasure that we may have experienced in the past. We're assigning permanency to that pleasure, thinking we can replicate it. And so what we're seeking or craving is that pleasure that we had before. And so like the Buddha simile, we're dragged by two strong men to the charcoal pit. So if you're not familiar with meditating on those two particular things and their similes, go back to the Dhamma session on noble retirement, and particularly part two of that live stream on the Portalia Sutta, and that, that would help. Now, there are also challenges in terms of the sickness of mind that arise with wrong view and with hatred in particular. 
because of disputes. So what tends to linger in the mind or even come into the mind when we're meditating is where we've engaged in disputes with people over views. And when these take hold of the mind, we get pulled out of concentration due to mind very quickly. You know, or, or the concentration weakens and then we have to support it back up again and, and try and use the medicine that the Buddha gives. So an example in a worldly sense is all these views that we've had disputes with people over, uh, about politics, about science, about the economy, about the climate, about many, many different things. We might actually physically have that argument verbally or it may be that we just have it in our mind where we've listened to someone and we come home and we're, we're, um, it, it's fermenting in our minds and we're basically having our own argument. And it can also be about Dhamma views. So when, the, when we engage with people, even in Dhamma, people who are practicing, people who are not practicing, it, it can be about what Buddha taught, what he didn't teach, what the teachings really mean, how to really practice them practice them and all the nuances around jhanas around all kinds of different things but whatever the case whether it's a mundane thing or a dhamma thing what's coming up in the mind that just pops up in the mind is sickness i'm right you're wrong because that's what engaging in disputes is about so we looked at this even in the halidikani sutta when we looked at why it's difficult to renunciate the world Venvo Mahakachana explained how we engage in dispute and he says you don't understand this Dhamma and discipline I understand this Dhamma and discipline what you understand this Dhamma and discipline you're practicing wrongly I'm practicing rightly what should have been said before you said after what should have been said after you said before I'm consistent you're inconsistent what took you so long to think out has been overturned, your thesis has been refuted, go off to rescue your thesis for you're defeated or disentangle yourself if you can. So this is very, very strong, like those words resonate like when we engage in disputes uh, either with people or simply in our minds with people. We often think, oh, they're wrong, I'm right, how could they think that? Let me defeat them with my argument and so on and so forth. And in Dhamma, this is also something that happens a lot, something that we need to own up to because we consider Dhamma uh, debates and Dhamma things, Dhamma conversations as sakacha, and in the right context they are. But when it becomes engaging in dispute, then this is something that can be extremely unwholesome rather than wholesome. So, for example, you could in your meditation be recalling a conversation with someone you're trying to help them but it's on the subject of maybe karma and rebirth and you engage with them and maybe you've engaged with them on a dhamma forum over the internet and you're writing things out saying you're wrong i'm right this is what the buddha said i'm defeating you and so on and so forth and you might even say your teacher is wrong what you're practicing is the wrong path and you you think that you're correcting them and then you think oh, i won that argument so it can be something that is very very intoxicating and it's actually that the mind gets quite sick because with that sickness in the mind, what is coming up when you're wanting to defeat people, when you're wanting to say I'm right, is hate, aversion, hate. So this is what destroys our concentration due to mind. So this is something that 
for all these subject matters, we need to consciously put up the stop sign. We need to cut off these kinds of unwholesome states, these kinds of uh, unwholesome narratives that are happening in the mind because it's the equivalent of, of the wrong kind of speech. And what I also find quite helpful, uh, particularly for meditation and even outside of meditation, if there's no need, it's really good practice not to keep the mind full of people so the stories about people, thinking about people, allowing them to linger in the mind. If there's something practical to be done, you do it and then you say bye-bye to the people in your mind with kindness because there's no reason for them to be there. This is very helpful to meditation because then the mind is quite purified and clean. It's not interested in people. It's not craving to to have those types of narratives and in a chatter in the mind about people. But what's really important at the end of the day is important to see that these kinds of conversations or inclinations, they're rooted in hate, so they're obstructive to developing the noble path, obstructive to training in this painful practice with quick realization, and very obstructive to developing compassion. Because we need to ask ourselves, particularly with regards to Dhamma disputes, where is the compassion if we are filled with aversion and we want to compete and fight? Like what we have is actually we've veered off, we're back on the hate path. So we may be thinking that we help people, but we're attached to our views, we're attached to whether they change their view, whether they change their practice, whether they change their answer, we're attached to being right. And at the end of the day, it's simply we're in conflict. So we're verbalizing that in our mind. And so we need to really genuinely give it up. When we share Dhamma, we do it with our best, uh, you know, intentions. We do it to the best of our capacity, honoring the Buddha's teachings as we understand them. But even after sharing Dhamma, it's important not to get attached to the outcome, whether a person liked what you had to say, whether a person agreed with you, whether they un- fully understood every little bit of what, what was being explained, whether they actually go away and practice it, whether they turn up, um, whether they engage in arguments or, or disputes. Um, it's certainly not to engage in arguments and disputes. So really, at the end of the day, You learn a lot from this particular aspect about concentration due to mind. It's so rich in in understanding where we go wrong. And so if we are able to do, say, for example, putting up the stop sign, really not inclining towards wrong views and, and having strong views and having so much aversion and to breed such defilements, then it's possible for us to maintain concentration due to mind and we won't be blocked from immeasurable compassion. So this is a very, very big challenge for us to overcome because we do have a great deal of attachment to Dhamma. And this is especially true if one has been practicing for a long time because one may have abandoned a certain amount of craving for sensual pleasures, so no longer troubled by them, have seen the danger in them. And so also no longer troubled by gross defilements, but now we have very strong views and we still have all these subtle defilements still still remaining. So this is a very important thing to, to practice. So to help us overcome sickness in the mind and the hate that arises, we develop the four bases of power. So this is the Chitaro Idipada. 
we don't want to respond to feeling. And this is because it makes the mind shake. It makes it weaken. So the four bases of power is what we need to develop and practice regularly so that we can readily activate and sustain them. Because if you think about it, what do we get most afflicted by? If something happens to the body, whether it's hot or cold, we start to shake, uh, not, not just physically, but mentally, the mind starts to shake. If we get told off, if something doesn't happen to our liking, if the pleasure subsides, if we made, m meet a painful experience, if something that we constructed fails us, then we start to shake. So the four bases of power are what is needed so that we don't shake, so that we really overcome any alteration in feeling. So in the, uh, um, in the Apara Sutta, this is Sangyutta Nikaya chapter 51, discourse number one, this is the first discourse in the chapter on the basis of power in the connected discourses. The Buddha says, because these four bases for spiritual power, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. What for? Here because a bhikkhu develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to desire and volitional forms of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to energy and the volitional formations of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to mind and the volitional formations of striving. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to investigation and volitional formations of striving. These four bases for spiritual power, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. So where have we developed these concentrations before? So we've done this recently uh, in our Dhamma session on the Potaliya Sutta. So when we practice the eight things the Buddha taught to Potaliya, we develop the Noble Eightfold Path that leads to noble retirement. So this is a very, very powerful insight pathway, which also helps us to develop the four bases of power. Something we didn't explicitly say when we did that session, but this is the case. Now, when you read other suttas on the four bases of power, you come to understand that the four bases of power are developed through the Noble Eightfold Path. So using the Portalia Sutta is not the only way to develop the Idipadas. There are other ways of uh, being able to develop them through the Dukkha Patipadar, Dandabhinya. So beginning with the painful practice and slow realization and anything which activates the Noble Eightfold Path. There's other different instructions that can be used. But since we know the eight things from the Portalia Sutta, what these are is really non-killing of living beings and taking what is given are part of developing the body. So this is the Bhavitakaya, which leads to the concentration due to desire, so the Chanda Samadhi. So it's the stilling of the unwholesome bodily formations. The second uh, pair is truthful speech and divisive speech. They're part of developing virtue. So this is the Bhavita Sila. We also looked at that when we looked at... Uh, uh, reinforcing the concentration due to mind just then and because it leads to concentration due to mind and then the third pairing is non-greed and covetousness 
and not insulting with anger. And so this is part of developing the mind, bhavata chitta, which leads to concentration due to effort. So the first one we said is the stilling of unwholesome bodily formations. The second pairing is the stilling of unwholesome verbal formations. And this third one is the stilling of unwholesome mental volitions. And then the last pairing is non-affliction with anger and non-arrogance. And this is part of developing wisdom, the bhavata panya. And so this leads to the concentration due to investigation. And so when we apply the Portaliya Sutta meditation using the Buddha simile, so I'm not going to go through all of that again, but when you actually do the meditation, you activate these four bases of spiritual power. And that's what's needed for this meditation. Because even in this meditation, the hate path that comes with contact and nutriment is very, very strong. What comes up and our, our inclination, our underlying tendency towards aversion is very, very strong. When you understand that, you know you really do need the four bases of power that are associated with happiness to actually help you out, to give you a hand. So this is what we're doing. We're saying, please give us a hand. So we develop these four uh, bases of power. It's also because it helps us to overcome feeling as a setting point for consciousness establishing. This is because we understand our predicament in samsara. We can't simply live on sensual pleasures. We can't simply live without sensual pleasures. We can't live simply with the higher concentrations. They're all subject to decay. They're not lasting. The pleasure ultimately results in pain. And so we end up with hate. So four bases of power help us to overcome this dependency on feeling. And so this is why consciousness would not establish and steady on feeling if we have these four bases of power developed, active, and at our, at our beck and call. So, out, so throughout this uh, painful practice with quick realization, we keep seeing it's all about feeling. Even this best meditation that lasts for a very long time can't be sustained. It all results in dukkha. So why, why would we want to crave something conditioned by feeling? It's just bound to dukkha. So we give up craving. We give up uh, the, the suffering that's associated with craving. So this is how we reach the immeasurable compassion. And the Buddha says in the Dutya Metta Sutta, as in other suttas about uh, the divine abode of compassion, again, some person pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with compassion, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above, below, around, and everywhere, and all around. He abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with compassion, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So we spread compassion in all directions with our mind imbued with immeasurable compassion. This is the supramundane compassion that we're talking about, underpinned by the truth of the second noble truth of suffering, which is the giving up of craving for any kind of existence, understanding the truth about feeling, and by developing this immeasurable compassion, we overcome going the wrong way through hate. So this is that dosa agati that comes with contact as nutriment. So this is the second doorway to Nibbana, painful practice with quick realization. So you can see that this is a very, very powerful meditation in overcoming the hate path. 
It's also uh, very good for penetrating the truth about contact, feeling and craving and that part of the dependent origination and seeing that craving is really the origin of suffering. And so when we understand this, we can cut off those links so we don't generate another rebirth. So if you're new to this second doorway to Nibbana, this painful practice with quick realization, what we've just gone through, it may seem overwhelming. I mean, that's that's the truth of it. It may seem overwhelming, but if if one is keen to gradually develop this meditation, can see the merit of becoming skilled at it, is inspired by Venerable Mahamogalana, then <clears throat> the encouragement is to take it one step at a time. A bit like how we've gradually learned, for example, the simile of the cloth. We've looked at one mental stain at a time. So if you don't have the prerequisites, say for example, you don't have painful practice with slow realization and connected with the Karaniya Metta Sutta, then that's where you begin. If you don't understand the Potaliya Sutta meditation, then that's also where you need to put some attention. And if you do have them, but you don't feel that you're very skilled at them, then you need to review and practice them. Like write the steps down, really look at them closely one by one or in pairs. And when you come back to this painful practice with quick realization and you learn to develop each step of this inside pathway one at a time, then you gradually build up the steps bit by bit into this insight pathway. And as you build up the insight pathway step by step, you follow the sequence. So that's really important. You make sure you follow the sequence. And you develop these wholesome perceptions, like these kusala sanyas regarding this Dhamma. Because this is what brings joy and happiness as we gradually train, as we gradually practice, as we gradually make progress. Eventually, when one is skilled at this inside pathway, it's like flipping on switches, one step at a time. When, when you become competent, having gained insight and wisdom in the meditation, it doesn't feel so difficult, it doesn't feel so unwieldy, it doesn't feel so clunky in terms of inviting different meditations and remembering the steps or trying to figure out what's meant at every step. The key thing is to learn these meditations gradually and in sequence and without skipping steps or glossing over them. It's only after you've learned it and embedded the Dhamma contained in it that it starts to activate more easily because you know, oh, that's what that means, that's what that means, oh, that's, that's really good, I understand form, I understand how to get to the jhanas, oh, yes, I know about the rising and passing away of feeling, oh, yes, I need to cultivate much, much more metta here, yes, I need to now contemplate um, about whether there's any unwholesome things that have arisen and strive to remove them, yes, I need to now... Uh, go through and, and connect it with the second noble truth of suffering. Oh, I've got, I really understand that. I make the determination for relinquishment because this is a bad predicament. Yes, I need to now access the concentration due to mind. When I access the concentration due to mind, I need to be careful about the sickness and the hate. I need to make sure that certain things are activated. And I need the four bases of power. 
in order to power this and meth is there the whole way through and that's how I get to immeasurable compassion having understood craving conditioned by this misapprehension about feeling and I give it all up I get this immeasurable compassion so you see that it's after you've learned it it can be activated more easily because also like we said at the start these spiritual spiritual faculties they continually get sharpened as we practice we grow in virtue we grow in our ability to concentrate the mind we grow in wisdom so the more we develop and train and understand the meditation inevitably becomes smoother and we can access certain higher concentrations more easily so in very simple terms this meditation if you were to sum up you would say well if all living beings are in a cesspool all this cow dung and we genuinely see that there's something better than that and we want to get out of it and we see the links independent origination so we see that with the arising and passing away of feeling that feeling conditions craving that craving for sensuality, existence and non-existence, all it does is it's based on dukkha and it results only in dukkha. And so when you genuinely see that, you say, yes, I'm happy to give it up. And so that's how you reach compassion because you understand there's nobody else in the world that is genuinely experiencing happiness. There's nothing to be envious about. There's actually, gen- you genuinely see, there's no sukkah out there. It all ends up in dukkha. So compassion arises, genuine, immeasurable compassion arises from that. Now, one of the questions that people ask is, what is the difference between loving kindness and compassion? And the mundane answer also rings true here that when you have loving kindness, you have good wishes towards other people. And when you have compassion, you're happy to give them something, like give up something of your own and give it to somebody else. So the same applies to this in a supramundane sense. With compassion, we're happy to give up something. And with loving kindness, we haven't needed to give up something. We've just understood the truth. And what are we giving up for compassion? We're giving up craving. So when we give up craving, then we gain the insight. We've really understood feeling. And we're happy to give up craving because we know it's all death bound. It's all dukkha bound. So the other aspect to this is when we share Dhamma and we're able to cultivate this immeasurable compassion, This is a very important thing for Dhamma sharing, for those who are keen to share Dhamma. And this is sharing Dhamma to one person, sharing Dhamma to five people, sharing Dhamma to a hundred people, to larger. It really helps to cultivate this uh, karuna apamana, this immeasurable compassion, because it helps people who are listening for them to be able to lift their minds, to connect and understand Dhamma. It's also giving them a sense of safety to meditate and for them to realize the truth. Most people are very fearful when they meditate, whether it's uh, physically fearful because maybe they're not meditating in a place that they feel safe, but it's also that mental uh, feeling of not feeling safe. 
And so when one is able to cultivate uh, compassion to this extent, then it's very helpful to those who are listening or practicing. So even when it comes to meditating in a group, if one or a few people cultivate compassion to this level, it's so helpful to others who are who are meditating and practicing Dhamma. And from our own perspective, it's very helpful for us to overcome the hate path that is inextricably linked to being born into this existence. So we are born with these aging bodies and with the conditions that exist in the world. And we can't help but live associated with hate, even if we access the higher concentrations for periods of time will still be disturbed. So we cannot live in non-hate. It's just not possible for for us. We can have temporary uh, time periods of uh, sukha viharana, dwelling in in the happiness of our meditative fruits, but it's not long-lasting, like it's not permanent. So the true safety and happiness that we remember is that it's not found in sansara. It's only realized in what is true and not deceptive, and that, of course, is Nibbana. And so by practicing this particular insight pathway for the rest of our life, it just makes, uh, it, makes it a little easier for us. So let me just do a quick recap of the meditation, just so you have the instructions again. So we start with the painful practice with quick realization. So you have the five meditation objects, contemplating the unattractiveness of the body, perceiving repulsiveness of food, perceiving non-delight in the entire world, contemplating impermanence in all conditioned phenomena, and also when we have the perception of death well-established internally. So this step is really you pick your best meditation, the one you feel the most skilled at. With that meditation, you reach the first jhana and recognize that you can reach the second jhana without any further thinking and examining of your painful object of meditation. You can let it go. Then you act as the rapture and pleasure, suffusing the body and the mind of the second jhana. The third step is that we establish mindfulness of feeling by contemplating the arising and passing away of feeling. We examine the arising of feeling. So this is the abhinandati, abhiwadati, ajrasayatitati. So we look at how we seek delight in feeling, welcome it and remain holding to it. As a consequence of that, delight arises. Delight in feeling is clinging. With one's clinging as condition, then existence comes to be. With existence as condition, then birth. With birth as the condition, then aging and death and the whole mass of suffering. So that's the origin of the whole mass of suffering. So that's what happens with the arising of feeling. So you see, even with the second meditation, this is what is happening. And then you examine the passing away of feeling that if we don't seek delight, we don't welcome, we don't remain holding. So nabhinandati, nabhiwadati, nachosayatati to the feeling. As a consequence of, of that, delight in feeling ceases. With the delight of cessation of the delight, then we get the cessation of, of clinging. And then the cessation of clinging is a cessation of existence. And then it leads to the cessation of the whole mass of suffering. So again, you see, ah, this is what needs to be done, even for that, that great pleasure we get from the second jhana. So then we want to reach the divine abode because we know that we need the loving kindness. So we practice the painful practice with slow realization. 
So the same five meditations, you pick the best one, you enter into the first jhana. From the first jhana, you establish mindfulness of the body, contemplating the arising and passing away of form. We connect again to dependent origination to see the links. Then we want to get to the heavenly abode, the four jhanas, because this is where we come out of the cesspool, away from the, the cow dung, and we reach the four jhanas because what we're seeing here is we get the first taste of nibbana we understand that there's something better than what we're experiencing in the cesspool that is sansara and so we make the effort our first right effort to not go back to that cesspool and how do we do this we prevent the arising of unarisen sensual thoughts ill will thoughts and harming thoughts we don't want to fall from this concentration and so then we contemplate the first noble truth of suffering. We see that with this existence in samsara, we're subject to old age, sickness and death and the whole mass of suffering. So we never get what we want in the world, which is long lasting happiness. When what we see in the world is false and deceptive, it has this death bound nature. We can't construct anything that can last. We give up the desire for the world. And so we make the determination for truth. This is our Satcha Aditana. And we make the determination for something that is lasting and undeceptive in nature. And so that is Nibbana. And with this desire for Nibbana, we enter into the concentration due to desire. So we know that we need to restrain our sense faculties to protect this concentration. Otherwise, we get troubled by covetousness and sadness. So when we restrain our sense faculties, we connect with the Karaniya Metta Sutta at Santindriyo. So the step then goes Santindriyo to Nipikocha. So when we're controlled in the sense faculties, then we're prudent. We're wise. So we don't uh, yearn to associate and lift ourselves to any particular family or group because we understand that the predicament is still the same. We cultivate this right view and we know that let's spread loving kindness to all living beings who are in the same boat, who are in the same Mara's cage. So we reach this loving kindness, this immeasurable loving kindness, and we need this to overcome the anger and hate associated with this birth. We need it for the rest of this meditation. So we come back to painful practice with quick realization and we make the second right striving. So we make effort to abandon any unwholesome states that are rooted in greed, hatred and delusion because we don't want to fall back to the hate path. We've cultivated loving kindness, the divine abode, and we don't want to fall back. We don't want to destroy loving kindness that we've just developed. And so now we come to the second noble truth of suffering. This is the second wonderful and marvelous idea. Here we recognize that it is due to feeling that craving comes to arise. We have misapprehended feeling that there is pleasure in the painful, but we remember that this pleasure is really painful. So why are we having craving for sensual pleasure, craving for existence, craving for non-existence? The result is only dukkha. So craving is the origin of suffering. So we can't live with sensual pleasures. We can't live a simple life without sensual pleasures. We can't live with higher concentrations, even without the form. This is like Buddha's simile, the last simile in the Potaliya Sutta. No matter what kind of existence we crave, we still are subject to aging and death. 
we're bound to suffering. So we decide, we, we understand feeling and we give up this craving. Nothing good comes of this craving. It's a bad deal. It's a flawed predicament, a flawed process. We've misapprehended time and time again. And so with this insight, we make the determination for relinquishment. There's no choice but to renunciate, to relinquish anything associated with coming back into the world. So all acquisitions, whether it's craving, views, defilements, karma, misconduct, nutriment, anger, the four kinds of clinging, the internal sense bases, the classes of consciousness. So when we do this, we reach the concentration due to mind, the citta samadhi. So we apply the Portalia Sutta meditation associated with lying and uh, 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 associated with truthful speech and non-divisive speech in order to support this concentration. In our meditation, we apply the stop sign and we remove any mental disturbances regarding wrong views and engaging in disputes. And we also then activate the four bases of power to overcome the sickness in the mind and the hate. We want to sustain our metta. We want to make sure that our mind doesn't shake. Otherwise, we won't be able to develop compassion. We don't want to be affected by the feeling uh, when, it, when it changes. And so we again, we meditate on the Potaliya Sutta. We develop the concentration due to desire through non-killing of living beings and taking what is, what is given. So we do that, and through the truthful speech and non-divisive speech, we are developing uh, the virtue, so this leads to concentration due to mind, and non-greed and covetousness, and the non-insulting with anger, we develop the mind, and it leads to concentration due to effort, and through the non-affliction with anger and non-arrogance, this is part of developing wisdom, and so we develop the concentration due to investigation. And so by meditating on the Portalia Sutta, bringing in the Buddha similes to fully penetrate that Dhamma, we lift the four bases of power. And so when we do this, we reach immeasurable compassion. We spread this compassion to all living beings. So the crux of the immeasurable compassion is that there is no pleasure in the world. There is no one else experiencing pleasure. So we don't want to crave anything that is false. And so we give up that craving and we have compassion for all living beings. So we've now come to the end of our session. Let's express gratitude to the Buddha for these powerful teachings. Let's also express gratitude to our other teachers, all the noble ones, our parents, our good friends, Kalyanamittas, everyone who encourages us on the Noble Eightfold Path. And if you would like to dedicate the merit from joining this session to any departed relatives, you can do so now. And we can share the merits of our wholesome time together with all sentient beings. May all beings be happy and well. 
May all beings be free from suffering. Blessings of the Triple Gem to all of you. Wishing you all well. May you continue to grow in the Noble Eightfold Path, find happiness in the Buddha's teachings, and grow in wholesome qualities.